This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Thank you guys. Open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Last week, we began a new series that is going to take us through Easter, and we're going to be in the Gospels. It's a study of the Gospels, a study really of the life of Christ through passages where Jesus is either sharing meals or he's talking about food or drink, Um, and in this case, he's not only sharing a meal with people, he's being criticized for doing so. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 9 this morning. Matthew 9, and we're going to be um, in verses 9 through 13. This, is, this passage is about the calling of Matthew. Matthew 9 and verses 9 through 13. Guys, I'm unable to advance slides here if you can, can, uh, can help me out. Matthew 9, and we're going to begin with verse 9. If you would just follow along in your copy of God's Word. The Bible says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have a heart of grace and mercy and compassion. And that because of that heart, you came for us, died for us while we were still sinners. And you call us now as rescued ones to be a part of the mission that you were carrying out in this world. As you continue to befriend sinners, you call us to do the same, to be vehicles, conduits of your love and mercy to others. We thank you for Matthew. We thank you for his story, his calling. And we pray that you would help us to learn greatly from this text about our rescue and about the call that you've placed on our lives to be a part of the rescue of others. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I vividly remember when I was in 10th grade on spring break, and so we were home all day, And President Reagan was shot one day in uh, that spring, and while I was home, I was glued to the set all day long and just watching this whole thing play out, and it was kind of like what we saw on our screens this week on the streets of Paris, just this sudden violence out of nowhere, and it was disturbing. It was scary. I remember even having difficulty getting to sleep that night. And what was also scary was that for a while that day, there was a crisis of authority in our government. 
the president was in surgery and the vice president was on a flight long way from D.C. And so there was a question for a while about who exactly was in charge. The context of Matthew 9 is that Jesus has been demonstrating through his words and through his actions that he is in charge, that he has authority. In Matthew 5 through 7, what do we see there? We see the Sermon on the Mount. And after Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, the Bible tells us that he comes down in chapter 7, at the end of chapter 7, and it says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority authority and not as their scribes. Now the word authority means from the original. Jesus taught with an original authority. The, the scribes and Pharisees taught with a derived authority. But Jesus was teaching from original authority. The word authority is related to the word author. When Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talked about life, he talked about life as if he was the author of life, for he is. Now, immediately after the Sermon on the Mount, in chapters 5 through 7, as Jesus speaks like no one has spoken before, beginning in chapter 8, he begins to do things that no one has ever done before. So in chapters 5 through 7, he's demonstrating his authority through his words. And then, beginning in chapter 8, he's demonstrating his authority through his actions. So what do we see in chapter 8 of Matthew? We see him healing a leper. And in compassion, touching the leper in the process, which was a no-no. Because they, the religious leaders believed that would make someone ceremonially unclean. But Jesus did it. And then we see in chapter 8 that Jesus heals the servant of the centurion who was a Roman soldier. And uh, this Roman soldier was a Gentile. But Jesus not only heals this man's servant, but then He goes on to say that, hey, there are going to be some surprises in heaven. <laughs> there are going to be some Gentiles like this soldier of faith that are going to be there, and they're going to be some of my own people uh, who are not going to be there. That didn't go over too well, again, with the religious authorities. And then we see Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law in Capernaum and casting out many demons in Capernaum. And then on a storm on the Sea of Galilee, as the disciples are afraid that they're going to die and, and, and the wind and the waves are, are raging, Jesus gets up and He speaks directly to the wind and the waves and says, peace, be still. And there's utter calm on the Sea of Galilee. We see Jesus then casting the demons out of two men who had been considered uncontrollable, but He heals them and they're, they're in control, they're, they're whole, they're in their right mind, they've been restored. And then, all this is in chapter 8, and then at the, in the opening verses of chapter 9, Jesus heals this, this paralyzed man. And not only heals him, but He says, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
And the religious leader said, who, who is this who claims the authority to forgive sins? And so the, the context here that we're seeing as we lead into this passage is that a couple of themes are emerging. First of all, Jesus is demonstrating authority. Authority over disease. Authority over demons. Authority even over nature itself. And then we see that Jesus is beginning to break some rules. He's beginning to minister to people that it was thought not in keeping, not, 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 it was not, the religious leaders did not believe he should be ministering to these types of people. People like Gentiles. Um, the, the way, as we saw last week in John 4, the way that Jesus treated women and, and he, that he reached out to, to women who were also looked down upon as less than in that culture. And then touching uh, a, a man like this leper. That theme is going to carry over in his ministry to Matthew. Now, Matthew is not a Gentile. Matthew is a Jew. In fact, he's called Levi in the other Gospels. And he's not, a, he's not a leper physically, but he was a moral leper. <laughs> he was a social leper, a social outcast for reasons that we'll see as we go on. Now, we see several things in this text. The first thing that we see is the call. The call, this call into Matthew's life. Verse 9, it says that Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now, this takes place. It says Jesus passed on from there. Uh, there is Capernaum. This takes place in the city of Capernaum. Uh, Jesus was raised in Nazareth but he, his, his home base of operations during his earthly ministry was Capernaum. It was on the, sea, the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And also, sitting on that shore would have been a tax booth where customs officials would sit and they would collect duties on goods that were coming in by way of the water, that were coming in on the boats. They, they, they were agents, essentially, of the Roman government. And in that tax booth sat this man named Matthew. Now, we're going to talk a little more about uh, Matthew later and why he was such an outcast. But for now, I want us to focus on the, this calling, this call that Jesus extended to him. So, it says that Jesus saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now what stands out here is the authority of the call that Jesus issues and the immediacy of Matthew's response. Jesus calls, he immediately follows. Now, had there been prior interaction between the two men? Probably so. But still, what's stunning here is that the, the authority of this call and just the immediacy of Matthew's response. And this is in keeping with the pattern that we see in the calling of the other disciples, and especially the two sets of brothers, uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John. So we see that in Mark 1. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, that was Peter, and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen, and Jesus said to them, follow me, 
and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets, and immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And by the way, when it says that they left everything to follow Jesus, it doesn't mean that they just kind of left behind what they were doing for a couple of hours to go hear Jesus lecture or something. It means that they were, they were leaving their lives. I mean, they were leaving their jobs. They were leaving everything to become disciples of Jesus. And that was the case with Matthew. In fact, in Luke's account of Matthew's calling, he says that, that, Luke, that, that Matthew left everything and followed Jesus. And that was the case. And listen, when Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to surrender all of our lives to him. Every, every aspect of our lives, um, we're to put our yes on the table for whatever He wants us to do, wherever He wants us to do it. We put everything on the altar of His Lordship. We put our sex life there. We put our finances there. We put our family life there, our relationships there, our job there. Everything is there. Say, Lord, I'm yours. I'm, I'm under your authority. I'm under your lordship. I, I surrender my life to you. He calls us to follow, and he doesn't tell us exactly how he's going to use us or where he's going to take us. He just says, follow me. But we can do that because we trust the one who issues the call. The great Christian writer George MacDonald once wrote a, a wonderful children's story called The Princess and the Goblin. And in this story, McDonald tells about a little eight-year-old girl named Irene. And she would go and meet with her, her uh, fairy grandmother, uh, who loved her so much. And, uh, and, and one day, Irene's fairy grandmother gave her a ring with a thread attached to it. And she said, Irene, if you're ever in danger, I want you to take this ring and put it under your pillow, and then I want you to follow the thread. It, the thread was so thin you couldn't even see it, but she, you, she could feel it with her fingers. And her fairy grandmother said, if you're ever in danger, put the ring under your pillow and just, just follow the thread, because you know what? I'm going to be holding the ball of thread at the end. So one night a, a goblin gets into Irene's house, and so she puts the ring under the pillow, and she begins to follow the thread, but to her horror... The thread is leading her outside and into a cave where many goblins are known to dwell. And, but she keeps following the thread, but then she gets to a dead end in this dark cave. There's a heap of stones in front of her, and she's crying. And at one point, she even turns around. She tries to go backward, but she can't follow the thread backward, only forward. And then she begins to, to pull at these stones, this heap of stones, and pull the, pull the rocks back. And then she, she sees why she's there. Her friend, Curdy had been trapped there, had been captured by the goblins, and, and she knew that her mission was to free her friend. And then she, she kept going deeper and deeper into the darkness of the cave, following the thread, because she trusted the one 
who had called her, she knew that her grandmother was holding the ball at the end. And indeed, in the story, her grandmother proves trustworthy. Tim Keller, in in reflecting on that story, says this, how can we possibly follow the thread? It's simple but profound. Jesus himself has done absolutely everything he's calling us to do. When he called James and John to leave their father's boat, he had already left his father's throne. And later, he's going to be ripped from his father's presence on the cross. It's going to look as if your thread is taking you into dead ends, places where you'll get bloody, where the only way to follow the thread looks like it could crush you. But don't try to go backward. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. Jesus Christ's kingship will not crush you, for he was crushed for you. He followed his thread to the cross so you can follow yours into his arms. That's the call that Jesus Extends. Now, we see the feast and the criticism that Jesus receives for taking part in it. Verses 10 and 11. It says, As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. Now, let's talk a little bit more about Matthew. He's a tax collector, which means that essentially he, is, he, he works as an agent for the Roman government. Israel, of course, is under Roman occupation. So every time that his fellow Jews look at Matthew, they're reminded that they are not free. They are reminded that their country is under enemy occupation And Matthew is working as an agent of Rome. So to patriotic Jews, he was considered a traitor. And to religious Jews, he was considered to be unclean because he was constantly uh, wrapped up and associated with Gentiles. And on top of all of that, the tax collectors were known for being unscrupulous, unethical, uh, for ripping people off. All of these things made him a hated outcast. So, when Matthew throws this feast for Jesus, and the other Gospels make it clear, it takes place at Matthew's house. So he's probably well off, and he's he's got to play. He throws this huge feast. Who does he invite to the feast? He invites his crew, (laughs) his his motley crew, okay, which included people that he knew, people like him, other tax collectors, people that were considered to be uh, sinners in the society. Um, because Matthew's goal is this. He knows his life has been changed by Jesus. And he wants to get his friends in proximity to Jesus. Because he believes good things can happen in their lives. As it had in his if he can get them in proximity to Jesus. Now, there's lots for us to learn from this if we're going to be effective in reaching people for Christ. But first of all, um, if we're going to be effective in reaching people for Christ, we have to have some friends who are not yet in Christ. If all of your friends are people who are already believers and they're already uh, actively involved in, in church, 
listen, you're just not going to be effective evangelistically. We have to be intentional about having a mixture of friends. Uh, some friends who are our, our, our close Christian friends, um, but we need to also be very intentional about having some friends of people that are not yet church. They're, they're not in, in, in Christ. Um, we just, you know, we, we can't, we're going to talk later on, we just can't reach people any other, any other way. Um, second, we need to pray for our friends who are not yet in Christ and seek to get them in proximity to Christ, as Matthew did. Now, part of it is getting them in proximity to you. <laughs> because Christ is in you and the love of Christ can flow through you to, to them. That's part of it. And then part of it is getting them around other Christians. And that means getting them involved with like the, your, your people, your friends at, at church. Um, getting them close to the family of God where they, and, and where they can experience the love of, of Christ. Um, and build trusting, no-strings-attached friendships with lost people. Listen, in our culture, people are just not going to be one to Christ in significant numbers any other way. That's all, relationships have always been the primary vehicle through which the gospel travels. Um, in our culture today, especially so. Uh, it's, just, it's just not going to happen uh, just by you know, knocking on their door or by you know, calling, calling them out of the blue or whatever. Okay, It's going to happen through relationships. We have to be intentional about building relationships, trusting, loving relationships with those who don't yet know our Savior. Look at, look at what else it says here. It says that Jesus was reclined at the table, verse 10, uh, with them. Um, again, in, in verse 10, it says he, that these uh, tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So in the first century, they didn't sit in chairs. Okay? When they ate, they would eat around a low-lying table. There would be large pillows around the table, and people typically would eat with their left elbow resting on a pillow. They would eat with their right hand. Their feet would be extended out um, behind them. And so Jesus is uh, reclining with you know, these tax collectors and sinners. They're, they're sharing this meal together. And table fellowship like that it implied uh, there was a sense of intimacy there. Then and now, to a certain extent. I mean, when you, when you share a meal with someone, I mean, there's a sense of, of intimacy that is there because when there's food and drink and when you're sharing a meal, um, people tend to be more relaxed. People tend to open up more, which is why I strongly encourage you in your, your Sunday school classes, uh, your small groups, to have have something to eat. Have something to drink. It, just, it relaxes people. It just tends to open hearts and use your home. Use your home. It's part of our call to be a disciple is to practice hospitality and to, and to use your home as a, as a place for discipleship, a place for evangelism, a place where relationships can be built and hearts can be open to Jesus and to one another. Now, when we follow Jesus, he's going to sometimes take us into some settings that maybe not, might not necessarily be 
comfortable to us. And they may at times be settings where even our Christian friends might not quite understand, you know, what we're doing. And we might get criticized. Jesus was criticized for sharing this meal with these people. What do they say in verse 11? It says, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? That was the criticism. Now, how is Jesus going to respond to the criticism? Let's look at it, the response. What is Jesus' response to this criticism? Verses 12 and 13. But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I want us to see three things about the response of Jesus to this criticism from the religious leaders. First of all, Jesus makes an argument from analogy. An argument from analogy. He says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. The response of the the strategy of the religious leaders toward the Matthews of the world, toward people like the woman at the well, like we talked about last week, their strategy toward people like that was what? Quarantine. Stay away. Stay away from them. The strategy of Jesus could not have been more different. The strategy of Jesus was the opposite of quarantine, right? His strategy was to reach out to these people, to build relationships with these people. He does so without ever condoning their sin or taking part in their sin, which is the line that we're always called to walk. We are, like Jesus, to be friends of sinners, not condoning their sin, not taking part in sin, but loving them, loving them with no strings attached. That's the way that Jesus related to people. That's the balance that he struck. He never condoned their sin. He didn't take part in it. But he loved them. He really loved them. And they sensed that he loved them. Which is why they enjoyed being with him and they heard him gladly. You know, some years ago, um, I was on a mission trip and, and we were in Morocco and we were on a trek and we went into this Muslim village, very rural, miles away from any kind of security or you know running water or anything like that um but we go into this village and um we were greeted warmly by most of the people there were a group of young muslim men that obviously did not want us there and they were sort of glowering at us and and um you know our cars were just you know maybe a couple of hours down the road we had plenty of time to make it to our make it there and you know we had planned to spend the night in that village but you know i mean i I figured at that point given some of the hostility we were encountering, we probably just, you know, proceed on to the vehicles. And, and uh, the missionary that we were trekking with said, you know, let's not make a decision right now because it, it would mean something to these people if we were to spend the night. So we basically decided, decided not to decide at that point. And then the missionary said to me and another young guy on the trip, he said, 
well, why don't you guys go out and try to engage these young men? <laughs> and so uh, we go out and, and we start throwing a Frisbee. And then we motion for these guys to join us. And it was like the hostility just, just melted from their countenance. They were shocked that we had uh, asked them to do that. They came out. They played through Frisbee with us. They played uh, soccer with us. We ended up spending the night um, in the village. But, you know, that's always been a lesson to me because my, my initial reaction was distance. Keep your distance. In fact, create more distance between you and them. The strategy of Jesus is the opposite. The strategy of Jesus is not distance. It's engagement. Engagement. Does it take risks sometimes to, to engage people? Yes. Can it be uncomfortable to engage people? Yes. But it's the life that he calls us to. And by the way, thank God that he came for us. Thank God that he came, that he didn't keep his distance, that he left the glory of heaven to come to us, knowing what that would mean. But knowing our need, knowing that we were lost, knowing that we needed to be rescued, Jesus came. He calls us into that life. He calls us to engage people. Rosaria Butterfield says this, put the hand of the hurting into the hand of the Savior. That's a beautiful definition of evangelism. Put the hand of the hurting into the hand of the Savior. But we can't put the hand of the hurting into the hand of the Savior if we keep our distance from the lost and the hurting. We have to get up close. And so Jesus uses this argument from analogy. It's, it's not those who are well who need a physician. It's the sick. Jesus, as a loving, compassionate physician, doesn't keep his distance from the sick. He gets up close to them. Second, Jesus makes an appeal to Scripture here, doesn't he? He says in verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, Jesus here is quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from the prophet Hosea, from Hosea 6.6. And the context of that verse, Hosea 6.6, is that God is saying, look, don't bring me your sacrifices and all of your religious rituals when it's not accompanied by mercy. See, originally the Hebrew word for mercy, it meant not only love and compassion and kindness and generosity and forgiveness, but it also meant you know, piety and reverence toward God. God doesn't separate piety and pity for people. And, and God is saying in this text, don't try, to separate, don't try to bring me your piety when it's not accompanied by pity, by mercy and compassion for people. Don't bring me your religious rituals when it's not accompanied by relating to people with love and mercy. Now, this is just really imperative for us to understand and the culture that we're living in in America today because when, when lost people 
look at people like us, a lot of times the image that they have of us is that you know, those, those Christians, you know, they spend, all their, they spend all their time going to church, hanging out with their family, and watching Fox News. You know, that's it. That's what they do. That's the sum of their life. What cha- that's the impression that they have of us. What changes that? When they get to know you. When they get to know you. Right? When they, they see who you are as a person, and, express, and especially when they experience your love. When they experience your, your compassion, your mercy for them. Again, Rosaria Butterfield says, the gospel road into people's lives will be in mercy. The gospel road into people's lives will be in mercy. God says, I desire mercy. Um, So Jesus makes this appeal to Scripture. And then third, Jesus makes a declaration of mission. Verse 13 again. He says, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, Jesus says, by reaching out to these people and sharing this meal with them, I am acting consistently with my mission. He had not tried to disguise his mission. It wasn't a stealth mission. Jesus was very upfront about his mission. Jesus says, my mission, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He says, I came to seek and to save what? What was lost. That's why I came. That's my mission. I'm acting consistently with my mission. Well, guess what? Our mission is to be His mission. Jesus calls us to follow Him. And when we follow Him, His mission becomes our mission. So what does He say to us? He says, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. I'm going to get you into the people business. You know, whatever your vocation is here today, um, there's something else happening that should be happening in your life, and that is that God has called you to be His his agent, His ambassador into the lives of, of people. It's about reaching people. Now, we can so easily forget this. I mean, we, we forget as individuals every day when we wake up. I mean, we should be aware of the fact that, you know what, I've been called to be an agent of God. The people that God is going to put in my life today, the conversations I'm going to have today, all the interactions that I'm going to have today, I represent Christ. I'm going to be His ambassador. It's easy to forget that, isn't it? It's easy for churches to forget that, to forget that, you know, we're in the people business. To, it's, it's easy for us to, to forget that, you know, we as a church, we're not supposed to be a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. That's our calling. Now, of course, the Pharisees were sinners too. <laughs> but their self-perception was that they were righteous. And that means they, they were the most lost of anybody. Because it's one thing to be sick and know that you need help. It's another thing to be sick and not even understand that you're sick. They were sick and they didn't understand that they were sick. 
and thus they didn't think that they needed a Savior. Now listen, if that's where you are today, if your self-perception today is that you are righteous, you are far, far from the Savior. Healing begins when we understand that we are sick with sin, that we cannot save ourselves, and that someone else has to help us that we need a great physician to help us. If that's where you are today, if you believe that you need Him, that you can only make it with Him and not without Him, then listen, I know someone like that. And this physician is both able and willing and compassionate to save. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of the gospel. We thank you for your calling into our lives to to follow you. We thank you that you came for us, that you did not keep your distance from us. We thank you for your great love and compassion that sent you from heaven to earth on a mission of love and rescue for us. And now, as rescued ones, having received so much of your undeserved grace and mercy and compassion, we pray that you would send us out each day into the lives of the lost and the hurting with your love. We pray that you would make us faithful in that that just as Jesus was a friend of sinners, that we would emulate his example and that we would see many of them come to know you and be changed by you, by your grace and for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about a relationship with Jesus, maybe you've got questions that need to be answered. We don't want you to leave here without having a chance to talk with someone as we have the invitation in just a moment, I'm going to be here at the front. Other pastors will be, and uh, we would love to talk with you. We'd love to minister to you however we can. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about becoming a part of our church family, uh, we, want to, we want to welcome you. If you're here and you've not yet been baptized as a believer, as two were earlier in our service, um, we would love to welcome you and, and, and begin to talk with you about that. If there's just a need in your life, you need to pray with someone, um, we invite you to come today. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen.
You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.